This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. Okay, look, I know I get excited about stuff. I'm an enthusiastic guy. I know this about myself. But guys, today's guest is, I'm just so excited for this. One of the country's leading scholars of African-American history and literature is here with us, among many other things, Hollis Robbins, and we're going to talk about seeing the world as it really is. Okay, so we just began talking about the Book of Numbers last week, and right near the beginning of the book, it describes one of the most mysterious figures in the entirety of the Bible, the Nazarite. The Nazarite is a man or woman who takes a vow for some period of time to live according to special rules of holiness and abstain from certain things of this world. So the Nazarite can't drink wine, can't get a haircut, can't come into contact with a dead body and so forth. Now, why would a person take such a vow? Well, the standard explanation is that the Nazarite regards the world as dirty and degrading and seeks to withdraw from it. But is this true? That actually seems pretty hard to square with biblical history. After all, some of the most important and influential political leaders in the Bible were Nazarites. Think major figures like Samuel and Samson. The book of Amos groups Nazarites together with prophets, definitely people who care about society and the affairs of this world. So clearly being a Nazarite isn't about simply rejecting earthly concerns. But then what is it about? I think the answer is that the Nazarite is someone who's able to see the world as it is not as we wish it were. And by abstaining from some of the base pleasures in life, like wine, or avoiding some of our basic fears, like death, the Nazarite's able to avoid distractions, to avoid getting stuck thinking exactly the same way everyone else does about both society's problems and its opportunities for transformation. It took a Samson to recognize that the Israelites didn't have to kowtow to the Philistines like they always had since the beginning of the Iron Age. It took a Samuel to navigate a healthy transition from leadership by judges to leadership by a king. And in fact, throughout American history, it's been those kinds of voices that have been essential for our moral, social, and even technological progress. It's been people who are willing, or in some cases who've been forced, to see the world differently because they're denied the same privileges or pleasures as everyone else, and who can then communicate their insights back to the rest of their community and the rest of society as a whole. And in the coming generation, those voices will be essential if we're going to shake ourselves out of our cultural malaise or what some are calling decadence. But where will those voices come from? Deeply religious thinkers? Crazy in the best way technologists? Thinkers from minority communities, whether Jews, Catholics, black thinkers, Hispanic thinkers, thinkers from India, or maybe just people who care about knowledge for more than just instrumental reasons. So to figure all this out, I brought on one of the most brilliant people I know, period, but also someone with amazing expertise in past thinkers and writers who've perforce seen society through a different, often truer lens. And she's also someone who's relentless in bringing her wisdom and creativity to bear on building a better future. She's the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Sonoma State University, one of the country's leading scholars of African-American history and literature, and an absolute legend on Clubhouse, not to mention on Twitter. It is Hollis Robbins. Hollis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Ari. That's fantastic. And you know, one of the things that's so exciting about listening to you, I was just not expecting an opening about the Nazarites. Oh, you know, this is where we come for the good stuff. I get the hot takes and good faith effort. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. My mind is just blown in so many different directions now. So thank you for that. Well, let's rock and roll. So 
we're used to thinking today in terms of decades, right? So like, I'm a, you know, I was born in the 80s, I'm a kid of the 90s, right? And the 90s feels like such a specific time, right? Like, tried to dress like Kurt Cobain, that was a thing back then. But whenever we look back on the past, right? So my training as a historian is kind of like in antiquity, so I think in terms of centuries, but even quite recently, you know, we tend to think of the 1800s, which is a period that you specialize in, as like the 19th century. But that seems like a very strange, reductive way to think about the past. So if you had to pick like a decade that was interesting, something that you think was really like a really important decade in the 1800s, like what was the 90s of the 1800s, but like in a good way? <laughs> That's a good way to think about it. I mean, it's a softball question for me because I'm uh, the 1850s is my decade. It's the decades when so much changed in America. And it's the decade that I think, you know, when Americans looked around and said, you know, after canals were being built, railroads began to be built, the entire country infrastructure was developing, and, you know, some some real concerns about Native Americans and where the Native American cultures and communities were going to fit into this. And that's a sadder part of this history. But leading up to the, I think, pressing question of slavery after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. So I think the 1850s were, I'm not sure if it's the 1990s, but it was a decade <laughs> of real self-questioning and real awakening and where the literature, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe, we've got uh, Herman Melville, we've got Hawthorne, we've got people asking serious questions about what this country is and where is it going. And religion, since this is a good place to talk about that, was really important, right? We, we were 15 years after one of the Great Awakenings, uh, 120 years after the Jonathan Edwards Great Awakening, and this idea that religion and clergy and God, yes, God, was going to play a role. We like God on this podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. And God was a serious character in all of the literature at this time. I mean, I try to bring God back into the conversation about literature, because as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to use the pronoun they. Let's do it. They, they, not he, <laughs> they uh, were a really important character. So I think that people tend to think, and I want to get into some of like the specific things that you study, because it's all so fascinating. But people think that kind of like all of our progress to the extent that we've experienced it in this country kind of just happened because we threw off the bonds of religion and tradition and we kind of broke free of the past. And this seems like an insanely backwards reading of history to me. So is that analysis correct? Is it incorrect? Where is it wrong? And if it is, what's the price that we pay for that narrative today? It's a good question about progress. I mean, first of all, I guess the question of progress is an interesting question. I've been reading Jonathan Edwards to go back a century, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, where he begins as his text, the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. It starts with Deuteronomy uh, 32:35. their foot shall slide, right? And the idea is, even at that moment in colonial America, you know, where progress, where settlement, where everybody wanted to get some property, where there was the beginnings of what would be the American century, the next century in terms of progress. And Jonathan Edwards' sermon was just about, well, as much as you're going to get, God is so much bigger right? It's so much bigger. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can dream that is as vast as what God has made. And it was a reminder not to stop progress, 
but to think about progress and anything that can be man-made in this context of what is God-made. And uh, you and I had this great conversation on Clubhouse. Oh, and I want to talk about that later, too. (laughs) Yeah, excellent. Well, about going to Mars, right? That would be progress. And is this something that God wants? And I was thinking it's what sort of that conversation brought me back to Jonathan Edwards, because this was a, you know, for better or worse, a colonizing project of Europeans coming to uh, to the United States. This was in the north. And there was uh, clearly also some slavery. Jonathan Edwards had a servant slave. And Edwards was saying, okay, you're colonizing. This is what's going on, but let's keep this in context and let's have some humility about that. And so it's an interesting uh, way to think about progress as having a dynamic relationship with God and with religion, not antagonistic, not one in the same, but a dynamic. You know, Jonathan Edwards is such an interesting way to think about this conversation because Jonathan Edwards is kind of right on this border when American religious life and particularly Christianity in America is at this interesting crossroads, right? So you have this developing tradition of evangelicalism and sort of this like revivalist enthusiasm. And at the same time, America is in many ways like transitioning out of this period that was dominated by Calvinism. Mm -hmm. First of all, can you talk a little bit about that transition? And also, you know, now Calvinism is making a comeback. You know, if you see like a tulip, next to somebody's like Twitter avatar, right? Like that's usually a Calvinist thing, right? Because that's the acronym for the doctrines of Calvinism, total depravity and so on and so forth. So Calvinism is making a comeback in American Christianity. Can you talk about, first of all, what is Calvinism, the American experience? How do we transition away from it? And what does it mean that it might be coming back? It's such a good question. And I could talk about Calvinism all day. I come at Calvinism partly through Calvin Stowe, Harriet Beecher Stowe's husband. I come at it through Calvin and Hobbes, but that's a different story, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And also Harriet Beecher Stowe's father, who was also a Calvinist preacher. Calvinist preacher. Yes, was not really a nice guy, I should say. Um, Harriet's sister, Catherine, was engaged to a fellow who died before he was saved, I guess, and before they were married. And uh, Reverend Beecher basically said, well, you know, you won't even be with him in heaven because he's going to be in hell which is kind of not really the nicest thing to say to your grieving daughters. But it's an interesting anecdote about Calvinism, if you're looking at the kind of dark and a little unpleasant side. You're the theologian, so you can probably correct me on this. But the idea of, you know, you're elect or you're damned, you're going to heaven or you're going to hell, and you don't know. And there's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is live your life. And it's a reminder that you, yourself, have nothing to do with it. Now, that being said, one of the things I like and I find interesting about Calvin is back in Geneva, he was supporting this law that balconies in buildings that were four stories high, which was a skyscraper in those days, needed to have railings so that kids don't fall off, right? So in in terms of safety regulations, he thought, you know, again, elect and damned is one big thing. But you know what? Try to keep people safe while you're alive, especially your children, because children were falling off. So, you know, he's not completely a figure of uh, non-government interference. uh, And I think that's an interesting story about him. But the Calvinism, if you don't know, try to do well in your life. So the Calvinist idea of working hard, of giving back to your community, not the idea of good works to buy your way into heaven, but just do it because you should do it. 
it's also a way to kind of confirm to yourself that you may be part of the elect. Right. But the 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 clear lesson is don't take it upon yourself. And I don't know if you've seen the film True Grit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I love that film, especially the new one, the Coen Brothers one. Yeah, that's the one I saw. As a Calvinist text, right? Because mm. the girl, Maddie, she's taking it upon herself to judge. She's taking it upon herself. That's amazing. Right. Right. And uh, this isn't my reading, but it's the reading I think is really great. And it's a good Calvinist reading. And she's punished for it. In a contemporary context, what would it look like for Calvinism to make a comeback? On the one hand, you know, Calvinism has this long and really amazing tradition in the American experience. And in many ways, the origins of the American experiment, it's like a Calvinist experiment. And in other ways, you might say that we're at such like an exhausted point of American life, like people are so tired and the fighting has gotten so bad, is the appeal of Calvinism, again, not in a theological sense, because I know it's a, it's a theological tradition with its own dignity. Is it possible that the appeal of just saying our fate has been predetermined, like, is that something that appeals to the American mind precisely now? No. And it's funny to me. It's <laughs> funny it. <laughs> to me. Yeah, no, it's funny to me that that is the appeal. And, you know, I, I think about this in in the context of, I mean, in some ways, if you ever have Chris Arnotti on the show, ask him that question. I don't know if you've read his book, Dignity. Dignity, it's fantastic. It's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. And I think he'd probably have a better answer than I to that question. You know, and I'm thinking again about de Tocqueville, who talks a little bit of, you know, in democracy in, in American, which, by the way, the person who popularized Tocqueville in America was Catherine Beecher. Oh, wow. Her first book on domestic economy, 1841, she was talking about domestic economy and the role of women and the role of households and the role of individual families in the growing American economy. And she quotes liberally from Tocqueville. Wow. It was after that where people like, who's this Tocqueville guy? And he starts to become canonical. And I've been reading, I mean, one always reads Tocqueville, but when Skip Gates and I published our anthology, 19th Century African-American Women Writers, right. in part, this book was... Actually, I'm holding it right here. <laughs> it's awesome. Thank Everyone you. should well, get it. <laughs> the, way, the, way I, the way we sort of sell it is Tocqueville famously never spoke to an African-American woman. Wow. Fascinating. Yep. He talks to all sorts of people and he talks about religion and he talks about the importance of religion. What he doesn't talk to or who he doesn't talk to are any black women. And when you think about religion in the black church and when you think about religion in the South, particularly under slavery, and you think about the importance of religion in the black community throughout the 18th and 19th century into the 20th, of course, too, he misses all that. Wow. He misses this, and this is looping back in a meandering way back to this question of giving it over to God. God will take care of us, and it's not up to me. And there is a sense of, you know, under these extraordinarily difficult circumstances, to radically give yourself over to God. That's fascinating. And actually, I want to use that as a segue. So... As you can imagine, I am veritably obsessed with the role and history of the Hebrew Bible in the American, or of the Old Testament, as, as others might call it, in the American experiment in American history. And I remember reading this book, 
American Zion, I think by Iran Shalev. It's a lovely book about kind of the role of the Bible in American, in early American history. And he has this really funny footnote where he says, you know, as the 19th century came along, Americans started to kind of move away from their reliance on the Old Testament and start focusing on the New Testament, and that's abolitionism. Then there's a footnote, and he says, but abolitionists really focus on the New Testament, except for in the African-American community. I'm like, well, that's a pretty big but. (laughs) So it seems to me that the African-American community has really always had this affinity for the Old Testament, for the Hebrew Bible, in ways that set them apart from kind of the majority community in America. And for that reason, obviously, as someone who comes from that tradition, from the Jewish tradition, that's always fascinated me. So why is this? And how does this shape African-American history? Skip Gates's recent miniseries on, on PBS, The Black Church, is actually really good on exactly this point, that enslaved individuals being brought from Africa, you know, in this place under incredible cruelty, learning or or beginning to understand or or being taught Bible, the Christian Bible, or, you know, the whole Bible, uh, both the Bible and the unauthorized sequel, as I call it, (laughs) is that the first place of recognition was Jesus, was a man who was whipped and beaten and loved, right, and worshipped, who was just oppressed himself, scourged, nailed to the cross, that this was a figure like, oh, like, I recognize that. I see what he's going through. This is what we are going through. So that the beginnings of the embrace of Christianity begin with Jesus. And over time, move to Moses, move backwards to Moses. And, you know, the figure of obviously uh, leading to the promised land, which is central, which is absolutely central to the Black literary tradition. It's absolutely essential to the spirituals, to the gospel music, which is primarily about Moses. So it is a different transition. And But I find it interesting as well, you know, getting back to Jonathan Edwards, that he reaches to Deuteronomy in this moment. And think about the Liberty Bell, which famously has Leviticus on it. The Leviticus Bell. Right, right. the Leviticus <laughs> Bell, right. So the Bible, the Old Testament, this freedom narrative is central. But it's interesting that in the, and again, I'm not a scholar of this particularly, but the fact that the initial embrace of Christianity was through Jesus, through the actual figure of Jesus. So I actually am so deeply, deeply interested in how the black community in America kind of receives the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament, particularly in the way that you're talking about, because there actually are some critical innovations that take place in that tradition that have then gone back to actually shape how everybody else, including the Jewish community, reads the Bible. My favorite example, which to the best of my knowledge, nobody has published about, I think this may be my insight, but I could be wrong. I guess we'll find out, is that Moses' catchphrase that we're always taught is, let my people go. He actually never says those words in the Bible. He says, let my people go for three days so that they can hang out in the desert and worship God, and then they'll come right back. And in fact, the Jewish commentary tradition from the medieval period, really even before the medieval period until today, kind of reads that as a moment of trickery and then it asks the question like, oh, how is Moses allowed to lie to Pharaoh? And in the European tradition, they read it that way as well. So John Milton uses that text as an example of how it's actually just to lie to a tyrant because look at what Moses did. 
the role that Moses has is not political liberator, right? Not someone who's standing up in front of the tyrant and demanding freedom, but as the lawgiver. And that is a critical thing that the Jews give to civilization. What the African-American community gives to civilization in that tradition is the idea, which appears for the first time in recorded history in the spirituals, is as Moses saying, let my people go, period, as being a political liberator. So to me, it's such a fascinating way in which the African-American tradition is able to derive new meanings. I think we're probably already latent in the text, but they were able to extract these new meanings from the text. And you have really studied some of the most interesting ways in which that tradition has done this. So for example, the sonnet form, that's one of your areas of great expertise. So what's the significance of using and becoming excellent at a form of art that imposes not just a form or a structure on you, but that actually derives from this tradition that we associate with Europe and Petrarch and Milton, and yet you have this very creative African-American tradition of using the sonnet. So first of all, what does your average person need to know or what should they know about that tradition? What new life does the African-American tradition breathe into that tradition? And what's the significance of making use of that sort of foreign form, as it were? Okay, so first of all, that is a masterful segue uh, it, from poetry, using poetry. I'm going to go backwards a little bit to say that when I was teaching years ago in Jackson, Mississippi, and I held a Seder with a number of my African-American students. A Passover celebration. Yes, a Passover celebration with a number of African-American students had been displaced after Hurricane Katrina and come wow. up to uh, Millsaps College where I was teaching at the time. And I had just everybody over to my house, we called it the Million Man Seder, and sang, which has become a family tradition for our Seders, uh, to play a recording of Paul Robeson, Go Down Moses. Wow. Uh, a little bit before Dayenu as part of this. And uh, it was really funny. My son Asher, a couple years ago, had his first Seder as a grown-up in his house and had a bunch of people over. And, you know, at the proper time, brought out the recording of everybody listening to Paul Robeson singing Go Down Moses, which, by the way, it's just... Just mind-blowing and belongs at every Seder. And it was interesting because a couple of individuals at a Seder says like, well, isn't that cultural appropriation? <laughs> man, if we're going to talk about a oh, cultural man. appropriation of the Bible, it's <laughs> like you're going to be down 1,700 rabbit holes, my man. <laughs> Excellent. But it was a good question and exactly what you're saying. Who's culturally appropriating what? And given, as you say, let my people go, I think the the Seder has now appropriated uh, that, and while everybody's appropriating everything, and it's awesome. Yeah. So this question of cultural appropriation about the Black Sonnet is, I think, again, a great segue. So the sonnet form, which was invented in 12th century Italy, is very much a kind of Neoplatonic form, and it's metaphysical, right? And the idea was you would look up at a castle, a tower, and there'd be a fair maiden, and she would always be fair, right? right? And you'd say, I love you, but I can't have you. Like, this is a problem. I have a resolution. So the 14 lines of the sonnet, the first eight lines, were setting out the problem about being in love with this fair maiden. And the six are like, but, you know, I got to work. These are the other issues I'm going through. And sonnet partakes of language of bondage, 
like I'm bound to something or I'm a slave to love and I'm fettered in my desire. And the sonnet form, which is 14 lines of iambic pentameter with a carefully set out rhyme scheme, is also an imprisoning form. So sonneteers throughout the ages from Petrarch, Dante, Michelangelo to Shakespeare, Milton, Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats famously um, in the European tradition, bemoaned the bondage of having to write in a sonnet form and the fact that all of the ideas that their poetic ideas had to be imprisoned in this tight structure. Well, as you can imagine, for Black poets, this is really interesting. It's like, let me talk to you about bondage and fetters. Let me talk to you about being constrained. And so after emancipation, you know, in the rise of Black colleges and universities, Fisk, Howard, Wilberforce, Tougaloo, Hampton, all these great new universities, a whole new generation of African-American poets in the curriculum, especially at uh, Fisk, had had a great English department that was full of the English poetic tradition. Writers were like, oh, this form is great, but I can do something new with it. And I can actually talk about the physical, not the metaphysical. And so sonnet writers like Paul Dunbar, who didn't go to college, but he was very widely read, Claude McKay, County Cullen, Gwendolyn Brooks, you know, I could go on and on, took the sonnet form and wrote sonnets like Edward Baugh, There's a Brown Girl in the Ring, which is a sonnet to a brown maiden, right? And Gwendolyn Brooks were like, well, you know what? Let me talk about physical love, not metaphysical love. So the sonnet form became very much a black form. So when you see sonnet writers like Natasha Trethewey or Terence Hayes, Rita Dove, who has an incredible sonnet sequence in a book from the 1990s, you see a transformation of this form into something that speaks specifically to the African-American tradition of breaking out of prisons, of saying, you know what, if we're going to talk about being fettered, I'll talk about being fettered. Wow. I mean, and it's such an amazing thing because I think there's this mainstream American perception that real creativity is just like doing your own thing de novo from scratch. And the tradition is like aesthetically boring. It's stultifying. But it seems to me it's such a backwards way of thinking about it because, I mean, to just build your own thing from scratch, like it's the easiest thing in the world. You have no requirements, right? Just do whatever you want. Actually making something new out of tradition is, first of all, much harder And second of all, it's a way to participate in the creative artistic process with the generations that came before you and in that way binding you to them. I mean, it's a way of creating community vertically, like across the generations, in addition to just horizontally. You know, actually, I'd love to talk to you about that particular way of reading, right? Sort of taking something that everybody uses one way and reading it in a completely new way. And I actually want to talk about one way in which you've done that, that I have just become obsessed by, which is your reading and returning to the story of the emperor's new clothes. It's a story that I feel like is on the lips of every single man, woman, and child. You went to school, you learn about the emperor, you know, and they, the weavers are kind of fabricating these clothes out of nothing. And then the child finally says, oh, the emperor's naked. And, you know, that story has been read and used for so many different ways. And usually they're lionizing the child in the story, right? The one who's able to kind of see through all of the spin and get to the heart of the matter. And I think these days it's easy to read it, I think, in like an even more morally problematic way as like an endorsement of like Twitter dunk culture. 
right? Like the child is like the ultimate quote tweet troll, you know? <laughs> so like, right? I love that. But like, yeah. is that is that the right way to read the story? Well, it's a complicated story. So Hans Christian Andersen publishes this story, writes this story in the 1830s, which in Europe is part of this era of the move toward constitutional monarchy. And if you think about constitutional monarchy, what is a constitutional monarchy? It's it's a monarch with a with a few with a lot less power, right? The power is somewhere else. It's a monarchy wearing a democracy's hat, you know. Right, <laughs> right. and not much else. The only right. thing that the monarch is wearing is the mantle or is the trappings of power, but really not much else. And so at this moment, Anderson is thinking about about what that would mean and what transparent government would mean. Right. And so the first version of his story has no little boy. Oh, wow. The first version of his story is the story of this king who is in his wardrobe trying on new clothes. And it was said of him, not that he's at the theater or not that he's in Senate, but that he's in his wardrobe trying on clothes. And then the next line in the story is time passed merrily in this town. This is a prosperous, happy town, right? Things are working well when he's just trying on new clothes. And if and you, the kid's not even there. And the kid's not even there. It's and like so James then, Earl Jones, like ad-libbing, Luke, I am your father. Like, that's what that is. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, you think of him as a leader who's trying on new ideas and it's working for this town. Then these rogue weavers come in and these rogue weavers are selling, right? They've got a pitch deck. They've right. got a pitch deck that that everybody's buying. And at this moment of the change to constitutional monarchy was also a change to a meritocratic civil service. So rather than having a government that's appointed, you've got to earn your position. You've got to take a test. So we're also at a place where across the world or across the Western world, civil servants who are in their jobs were suddenly working together with new people who have taken a test to get there. So there is, you know, a lot of churn in government as we're thinking about improving government. This was happening in the United States as well. So the rogue weavers say, look, it, you can see this material only if you're good at your job and only if you can do your job, if you're qualified for your job. So, of course, everybody's going to lie and see the clothes, because how else do you know if you're going to be qualified to do your job? My point is, in reading this story is all of the interesting parts of the story are well before the little boy. And when you take the little boy out of this story, you've got everybody saying, I guess I'm good at my job. What is this exam? And if you think about today, all the conversations about diplomas, right? Do they really tell you something? So everybody says, oh, yeah, I, I can see the clothes. Yeah, I can see those invisible clothes. Right, the kid's almost like an easy resolution to the story. Yes, as, yes. As opposed to actually playing up the tension of like, we're transitioning to something brand new that's really anxiety-inducing. Right, exactly. So when the king and his ministers, and there's a canopy, there's always a canopy in this story, when they go out to walk through the town and parade these clothes, and everybody knows what's going on, and he's transparent, and everything's transparent, the townspeople cheer, and it's great. And so he's about to send this story to the publisher, and he gets this idea that's a little too bitter. <laughs> like he's not really sure. So he adds the little boy and the little boy, you know, cries, but he has nothing on. Everybody is disenchanted at that point. It's kind of sad. 
And he's got this really interesting moment, which I am going to link to Genesis. He's got this really interesting moment where his ministers who are walking behind him, who have been holding up this invisible train, hold it up even higher, even though they've been called back out while they're walking. And I think about this moment in Genesis when Noah's naked. Right. And uh, after getting drunk and Ham is like, ha ha, I see dad naked. And there's this moment where Shem and Japheth pick up a cloak and walk backwards, right? With their backs to him. With their backs to him. But it's a real ceremonial moment. You are not seeing this nakedness that I see Anderson's weavers doing right at that moment. Wow. That they're like, we're not seeing his nakedness. Wow. That's such a more morally interesting thing than just saying, ha ha, this is all dumb. Right. Isn't it? Right. What does it mean to support a transparent government? What does it mean to be a minister in such a government? Fascinating. Well, this actually is a transition to the last question I wanted to ask you. A perfect transition. You have thought so deeply about navigating the challenges of the past, about voices that we don't typically pay attention to and how they've commented upon the past and shaped the past. And also, the last conversation that you and I had together was on Clubhouse talking about sci-fi, which is something that you regularly do. So can you talk a little bit about what got you interested in sci-fi and how does this relate to your work as a historian, right? I suppose sci-fi in many respects is sort of being a historian of the future, right? Like how do you bridge those two interests and why is it so interesting to you? Thank you for asking about that. (laughs) I'll tell you, sci-fi in some ways is a way of talking about all of the hard issues that we're facing now as a culture, as a community, as a nation, as a globe, without getting in fights about it. Because we can aspire to a civilization that perhaps is less unequal, that perhaps does not divide people on race, religion, ethnicity, poverty, gender. We can think about a future, we can aspire to a future where we've addressed global warming, all right? Or we've addressed challenges that we don't even know what we've had. We can engage with technology and you know issues like surveillance or or family structure, or death, or DNA. And we can put that all on another planet and look at the authors that have engaged with those issues. So the room we were talking about, you know, can you be Jewish? Or how do you be Jewish? On Mars. On Mars was so terrific to think about, you know, as you were saying, all the prayers are about fruit of the earth and are earthbound. Do they even work there? You know, do we give a blessing for air, right? Right. It was the most fun I've had, and I can't remember how long. It's so fantastic. I've had these other great rooms on gender, for example. We had one this past Sunday. So they're Sunday nights, uh, usually around 6.30 or 7. Yeah, plug them. Let's plug. Let's Uh, plug plug them. Yeah, no, it's great. (laughs) It's the biggest sci-fi club on Clubhouse. This last one was about royalty and aristocracy. And why is it that so many science fiction stories, Dune and Star Wars, have an aristocracy, right? Why is it that authors have felt a need to have kings and lords. And some of the discussions that we had were really interesting, which is, you know, it's a way not to have to deal with elections (laughs) in space, right? So you would either have a royal structure or a military structure, which is equally stable, or a priestly structure, which is equally stable. And then we got into this conversation about why aristocracy 
all of the titles like king, queen, duke, duchess are gendered. And what does this mean for sci-fi gender in some sort of aspirational future? What would it mean to have a monarch without gender? Wow. And can we look to the past? So, you know, we've gone back and looked at Indian mythology and Greek mythology and brought in into the science fiction literature conversation historical ways of dealing with the supernatural and narrative, as well as aspirational, you know, spacecraft ideas. And it's just, it's so great because I hate to say we never get in a fight because now we're going to get into a fight somewhere, but because it's aspirational and it's fictional, we can grapple with all of the problems. That is amazing. Unbelievable. So, So first of all, where can people find you on Twitter? At Anecdotal. That's where they find you on Twitter. When can they join the sci-fi discussion on Clubhouse? On Sunday nights at 6.30 or 7, we start whenever for two hours. Amazing. And I I can say from personal experience that Hollis is a Clubhouse master. Uh, So follow along on Twitter, follow along on Clubhouse. Hollis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been delightful. I'm still I'm still going to go think about the Nazarites now because you've just gotten my mind going in that direction. Yes. Now we're talking. That is amazing. So what's more important, thinking about the past or focusing on the future? Well, if there's one thing I want you to take away from a podcast like Good Faith Effort, it's that the best way we know to get a future that's not just great, but creative, interesting, unexpected in the best of ways, it's by creating those vertical relationships between the traditions and thinkers of the past and the possibilities of the future. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. If you like what you heard, then here's what you do. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. And if you do, if you review us on iTunes, let me know on Twitter so I can let the world know how awesome you are. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.